Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you've listened before, welcome back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or possibly do some good today as these chefs inspire us. And we're grateful to our partners who help make this podcast a reality. With that... This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at Martin's Famous Potato Rolls and Real Good Fish and Wickles Pickles. That's right, a trifecta coming at you today. All right, everybody, here's the deal. If you listen to the pod, it's no secret that I love our partners. Week after week, I talk about why I love them and how I personally use their products. So this week, I've created what I'm calling a cast iron spicy fish sandwich on a toasted garlic hoagie roll with Christmas remoulade and shreddis. This is a fish sandwich using one product from all of these partners and one you'll likely want to make at home. So we have Martin's Famous Potato Rolls, an all-American family-owned and operated company that's been around for over 65 years, but I'm not using their potato roll. I actually chose their hoagie roll. Then we have Real Good Fish. They offer the freshest seafood direct from fishermen who value sustainability and it's delivered with full transparency. What does that mean? It means when you receive it, you know who caught your fish, how they caught it, where they caught it, and on which vessel they caught it. I happen to be using rockfish, but feel free to use another thin white fish filet. And then we have Wickles Pickles, another family-run business made using a 90-year-old family recipe. They have two varieties, an original Wicked Brine and also a Dirty Dill line. But... I'm using their Wicked Jalapeno Relish and their Spicy Red Sandwich Spread. Hang tight for more on that. Okay, for the Cast Iron Spicy Fish Sandwich on a Toasted Garlic Hoagie Roll with Christmas Remoulade and Shreddis. First off, you can find the recipe in your episode notes on your podcast player, or you can go to beyondtheplaypodcast.com. All right, here's what we do. We start by making a simple blackening spice or Cajun spice, whatever you want to call it. Took a little inspiration from the late Paul Perdone in New Orleans, who kind of pioneered the blackening spice technique, if you will. I use a variety of different spices from sweet paprika, smoked paprika, little onion powder and garlic powder. I'm using some New Mexico green chili powder, but you can use chili powder of your choice, some dried oregano and dried thyme. The amount you're making may make a little more than what you need for the fish, but it will stay good in your cabinet and you could use it for other recipes later on. Next, we do a play on something I learned in Santa Fe, New Mexico. They serve a dish called Christmas style enchiladas. Simply what that means is half red sauce and half green sauce. I'm actually not sure if this is an overall New Mexican thing or literally in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Regardless, I'm taking some inspiration from there. Start with a little bit of mayo, add some rice vinegar for some tang, and then some Wickles Wicked Jalapeno Relish, some Wickles Spicy Red Sandwich Spread, season it up with salt and pepper, and there's our Christmas Remoulade. Now for the sandwich, as I mentioned, I chose Martin's Hoagie Rolls. You can use another long roll if you'd like. We simply take those rolls, we're gonna give them a light slathering of butter, a little sprinkle of some granulated garlic, and then give them a light toast. But after you give a light toast, let it cool down because it's gonna create a really nice barrier on the sandwich. And then for the fish, you're gonna wanna pat it dry with a paper towel. After you do that, give it a nice seasoning of salt and pepper, a heavy dusting on both sides of that blackening spice, and then give it an even coating of your olive oil spray. This is gonna help with the stick factor. You're gonna cook that in a preheated cast iron skillet for about two minutes on each side or until it's cooked through. While the fish is cooking, you could slather both sides of your bread with the Christmas remoulade. So as that fish comes off the pan, goes right onto the bun bottom, 
topping it with a little shredded lettuce, AKA shreddice, a couple slices of some delicious tomato, bun top, there you have it. Cast iron spicy fish sandwich on toasted garlic hoagie roll with Christmas remoulade and shreddice. Again, you can find the recipe in the episode notes of your podcast player or at beyondtheplaypodcast.com. To learn more about Martin's famous potato rolls, go to potatorolls.com and follow them on social media at potatorolls. To learn more about Real Good Fish, go to realgoodfish.com and follow them on social media at realgoodfish. And to learn more about Wickles, go to wicklespickles.com and follow them on social media at wicklespickles. Martin's Real Good Fish, Wickles, we thank you. Hey everyone, one more thing before we get going. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch, which you can find a link to in your podcast player or at beyondtheplatemerch.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, and hoodies. Again, that's beyondtheplatemerch.com. All right, enjoy this week's episode. Today's guest is a Boston-based chef, restaurateur, dad, philanthropist, and one of the greatest chefs that I know. You may have eaten in one of his many restaurants in Boston or around the world, Uni, Toro, Copa, or Little Donkey. He's worked in New York City, Rhode Island, San Francisco, and back to Boston. He received the coveted title of James Beard Best Chef Northeast, along with plenty of other accolades for all of his restaurants. He was on Iron Chef back in 2008 and won. When he's not working, he spends time at home with his better half, his wife, Celine, his daughter, Verven, and son and sous chef, Luca. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with the man who Boston Magazine called one of the 100 most influential Bostonians of 2021, Chef Ken Boringer. Man, Cappy, making me sound uh, important here. <laughs> I mean, that's probably like 3% of everything you've done, but I, but you know, I'm, I'm happy to, to rattle off some stats. Let's check your audio quick. Name me 10 staple tapas or pinchos that everybody needs to eat in Spain? <laughs> Pan con tomate, tortilla española, jamón croquetas, bacalao croquetas, mushroom pinchos. Good, good, good. You're good. I'm hungry and, and I got it. I should just let everyone finish the 10 and I, and I never do because I get hungry and their sound is good. Congrats on the Boston Magazine. I think when I was talking to Celine, she had, it wasn't out yet. And I was like, what? The F, incredible. They also said over the past year, Oranger has used his soapbox as chef owner of some of the city's most popular restaurants to help the industry survive. I want to know, how does that feel? You know, it's, I'm sure, like a lot of people, I mean, it always feels odd to win awards out of kind of like out of your wheelhouse, you know, and cooking is something I've always won awards for or running restaurants or things like that. So it, was a real eye-opener to see that people notice that, again, us as chefs, restaurant people in general, we, we've always known that we have a loud voice, but we, in these little towns, you know, like Boston, you know, it's like, do people really notice? And uh, we're just trying to do everything we can to help as many people as we can anywhere in our, in our cities, in our state, in our country. And, you know, and in the world, it just goes to show that if you have a voice, then uh, people will hear it. And it's just nice to know that, again, you know, when you're calling senators and you become friendly with, you know, Congress people and, you know, uh, something that I never thought in a million years I'd ever really be doing, you know, people, uh, people want to help and they realize the importance of restaurants to communities. And when you really think about it, without restaurants, communities are nothing. 
That's incredible. This is going to be good. And something you all should know, Ken is an extremely humble person as a human and as a chef. And I think we're going to get a taste of that. So I'm going to pry everything out of him. All right. So take us through like highlights of your career, like from here to here to here. Give us those bullet points. I'm not a young guy, Cappy. How far back do <laughs> you want to go here? <laughs> highlights. Highlights. All right. Highlights. All right. I guess, hey, let's start, you know, start young. I think I'm one of the few people in life that was lucky enough to know what they want to do from pretty much the second they were born. I didn't grow up in the restaurant industry. I grew up with a family that loved food and always knew I wanted to be a chef. So started watching cooking shows, you know, the Julie Childs and Jacques Pepin's and Galpin Gourmet and all those long before the Food Network, obviously. And just loved food and was lucky enough to, I grew up in New Jersey, right outside of Manhattan. And we would go into Little Italy and Chinatown and street festivals and see whole roasted, you know, lambs and at Greek festivals and things like that. So I was always totally inspired by food and was on a mission from a young age. Uh, you know, in high school, I was making consommes and cream puff swans and you know, all that stuff with a, a, my best friend growing up, his uh, parents had a restaurant and, you know, we would always, always cook and always experiment. So went to business school as much as I didn't want to. I wanted to only go to cooking school, but my parents like, no, you have to get an education first. And the smartest thing I've ever done was get the business degree. And then went to cooking school at the CIA after that. While I was at cooking school, worked with uh, David Burke at the time at the River Cafe in New York, which he was probably the most innovative chef, I would say, you know, in the country at that time. And, you know, there were everybody from Charlie Pont, the legacy of Charlie Palmer and Larry Forgione and these other amazing American chefs at the time. And really learned so much there. And it, it opened up my eyes to be you know, to be as creative as humanly possible. When after there, I got my first job, I decided to go back to Rhode Island where I went to business school at Alforno, a restaurant that at that time was using all local organic produce, uh, was using all wood, uh, you know, wood oven, wood grill cooking, you know, kind of like Chez Panisse style, you know, before anybody made it popular. Had a great time there, flourished, trained everybody on all the stations, even started a churned ice cream operation, which they still use this day, but churned a la minute. Every, every ice cream was churned in little individual containers uh, to order and baking all the, all the desserts to order. So I was a pastry chef there. I also trained people on the famous grilled pizza station and all those other things. And then I wanted to get back into something a little fancier. And Jean George at that time had a restaurant in Boston. So I would commute from Providence to Boston. It's called Le Marquis de Lafayette. It was, he had Lafayette in New York at the time and Le Marquis de Lafayette in Boston. And there was a consulting chef named Louis Outier, who was Jean George's mentor, who was this legendary three-star Michelin chef from Provence. And it was incredible, you know, at that time, just being able to utilize what was I was really inspired by was Asian ingredients, uh, cooking French food. And it kind of shaped my whole outlook on food for a long time. So 
was worked my way up to a sous chef there was the only person there non-french except for one dude from ireland so i learned french real quick and worked there for a bunch of years the economy tanked and then we ended up closing the restaurant the hotel ended up closing as well and then i decided to move out west to san francisco and continue my quest for you know asian i knew that san francisco was a place that people were doing a lot with asian ingredients and got a job as the chef at uh silks at the mandarin oriental hotel and just kind of had a lot of fun there. I was like a kid in a candy store having my first real chef job and basically using everything. I would walk to Chinatown on my way to work or Japantown and, you know, get all these ingredients I never knew anything about and just uh, played around with everything. People really seemed to love the food. Michael Bauer, you know, picked me one of the rising star chefs in the city. We got three and a half stars from the Chronicle. And you know, things were great. I loved it. I was lucky enough to go to Asia uh, for the first time. And they sent me to kind of consult on some of the other properties that they had in Bangkok and in Hong Kong and teach them how to do a lighter style of kind of, again, like an Asian inspired food that wasn't just Asian. It was more like California Asian or French Asian or something like that. So spent a lot of time in, in Asia, which again, continued to drive my inspiration. And then was there for, you know, almost five years. And then it's like, I want to come back East and open up my own restaurant and was lucky enough to find some people that believed in me that had a hotel in Boston, Elliott Hotel, convinced them to open up a restaurant, a contemporary French restaurant called Clio. And Clio lasted, you know, a good 20 years and, you know, won a James Beard award and, you know, got many accolades and cooked for everybody from Thomas Keller and Eric Repair and Farron Adria. And, and so a lot of people were noticing the style of food we were doing, which was very creative. And it also opened up, I was invited to cook at festivals around the world as well. So I was going to Spain to go do events in San Sebastian and Barcelona and Madrid Fusion and, and things like that. So I started to become friendly with a lot of the, you know, I get the Ferrans and uh, Arzac and uh, Andoni from Ugaritz and Jose Andres I met, you know, uh, when he was a nobody back then, you know, eating with uh, Albert Adria and Ferran and all these other guys. And, and eating with all those guys, it kind of uh, opened up my eyes again. To me, food was always fine dining, fine dining, fine dining. You know, it's like, how can I be better? How can I do this? How can I do that? And be more creative. But then going to these festivals and sitting down with them after we would do the festivals and seeing how much fun it was to eat in a tapas bar and to go from tapas bar to tapas bar. And this place was known for its anchovies and this place was known for uh, its jamon. And then this place had, you know, chorizo iberico biota that was made by, you know, the, somebody's grandma. And so it kind of opened up my eyes to how much fun food could be sitting 20 people at a table and just passing and sharing things. And I was like, man, what am I missing here? And I took a trip to Japan and just kind of researched a little bit. And I was like, all right, I'm going to start opening up something a little bit more fun. And there's more to restaurants than just food. So I uh, decided to open up a place called Uni in the lower lounge of Clio, which was basically an excuse to get me out of the kitchen where I was driving everybody crazy, you know, kind of screaming, screaming and being, you know, this, you know, like a young, you know, kind of like driven chef. And I was like, okay, I want to get out here and I want to cook for people face to face and have fun and create a party every night. And uh, so three nights a week, I would be out there doing omakase menus 
And I wanted to do all Japanese style food, but I obviously wasn't Japanese. I wasn't trained in Japan. So I broke all the rules and said, okay, I'm going to open up a sashimi bar. I'm not going to have any sushi. I'm not going to have any rice. And I'm just going to serve raw fish the way I interpret it. And it became hugely popular, got me out of the kitchen, and then opened up the door for me to say, okay, next I'm going to open up a Spanish tapas place, Barcelona-inspired, called Toro, which I did after that. And then after that, every restaurant I've opened has been driven by energy, fun, of course, always having good food, but just uh, having places that people can share things and, and just play hip hop music and just kind of create a party with great food. So I opened up Toro. Then I opened up uh, years later Copa with Jamie Bissonette, my business partner in a couple restaurants, you know, and then after Copa, we opened up Little Donkey. And, you know, even between there, we opened up, we had Toro New York, which had, you know, seven year run, which we just closed with COVID. And then we opened up some restaurants overseas. We opened Toro in Dubai, and we opened up uh, Little Donkey in Bangkok. So kind of that's, the long and short of it. I don't want to talk uh, too long on it, but oh, I love that man. I could listen to that all day. Did you ever want to throw in the towel at any point in any of these journeys? It's funny because I am the type to never throw in the towel on anything. And one thing COVID taught me is, you know, sometimes you can't be too proud, and you could only do so much, and a lot is out of your control. And you know, with Toro New York, you know, could we have? maybe figured some kind of way to keep it open and raised a exorbitant amount of funds, you know, and, you know, worked out something with the landlord that, you know, we were paying a very high rent. You, you knew the space well. So, you know, we could have borrowed a lot of money and we probably could have kept it open, but sometimes you have to just cut your losses and, and look at what you have. And it kind of allowed me to stay in Boston, focus on, on these restaurants, spend more time with my family during a very challenging time, obviously, you know, having little kids, you know, doing uh, remote school, and then also to figure out how to do things for the community and for, you know, for others in the industry where I wouldn't be pulling my hair out every day, just trying to figure out how to survive a restaurant that may or may not have been able to survive. So it, uh, it just really was a huge weight off my shoulders and, and gave me the freedom where every day, I could literally, you know, work on things that I that I never had an opportunity to work on before. That's amazing. I want to sidebar because something I respect um, a lot from you. We so full disclosure. Not that I need to give full disclosure. Ken and I have known each other for many years, and we Ken was going to be on the podcast like a few seasons ago. We were going to record it on a on a trip we were on together, and we didn't because we got stuck in a good way in the kitchen making food. And then we were rescheduling it for this season. And it was a really hard time for for a lot of people, but especially, you know, the industry. And so we we pushed back a little bit and then we scheduled again. And I mentioned this because Ken's one of hundreds, thousands of chefs going through a lot of shit, you know, in the last time we rescheduled, you said, Cappy, I need to push again because, and feel free to correct me, it was, it was something like you need to focus on the operations of your restaurant at that moment in time. And I never push any guests to do this podcast if they want. I, I only want them to do it if they want to do it. But when you said that to me, I was like a million percent 
take your time. That's priority. You do you. And so it was, it was actually like refreshing to, it's like refreshing to hear a no at, at that time. Does that make sense? Like you saying yeah. like, like, let's pause for a second. I, you know, yeah. and it's not easy to say no sometimes. And, you know, especially, you know, to have conversations, you know, with you, it's, I mean, this is exactly heavy lifting, you know? but the thing is, again, just time, you know, sneaks away so quickly and, and to find an hour sometimes is, uh, it's really hard when you're just trying to, uh, always juggle time between, um, you know, work-life balance with, with the family and, and again, just with restaurants, uh, during crazy, crazy times where you never know what's going to happen on a daily basis. And now with COVID, you definitely don't know what, you know, what was going to happen on a daily basis. So it's always, always something, but, uh, you know, that's the, challenging, fun part of the restaurant industry. So I'm curious, you mentioned Jamie Bissonnette, who's also an incredibly talented chef, and you guys are partners in some of your restaurants, which is interesting. You're two extremely talented chefs. You guys have a really solid relationship. What would you say is a secret to a thriving partnership like in the restaurant business? I think the secret is, I mean, it's like any relationship, you know, uh, it's give and take and it's respect and just listening. You know, it's not trying to think that you know everything and it's not trying to and admitting that you're that you may be wrong or that you're making mistakes or that you're looking at things differently and and listening to somebody when they say, you know what, you know, let's look at it this way. You know, this might be a smarter way of analyzing, you know, whether it's your business, whether it's an employee, whether it's anybody and just saying, okay, this is working, this isn't working and not to be too proud to just open up your ears and say, okay, you know, let's uh, look into that and being open-minded. Okay. So you, you mentioned going global, you mentioned some of your other restaurants, Dubai and Bangkok. What are some challenges to opening abroad? (laughs) Where do I start, Nud? (laughs) I mean, it's, first of all, the the projects take forever and ever and ever and ever. I mean, you always think that, that, Things are going to happen, you know, a little quicker. Nobody, nobody works at the pace that we uh, that we work in at the United States. So, I mean, yeah. I also imagine it has to be interesting because a lot, of, most of your restaurants are in Boston, and you're in Boston, so you can like, I'm exaggerating, go down the street if you need to like check on something, and there's no going down the street, you know, in Dubai or wherever. Yeah. So to open it again, people say, oh, you know, are you interested to open a restaurant, and you know. You get opportunities all the time in, in many, many places. And some sound intriguing, some you just kind of pass on. But by the time you finally say, you know what, that sounds like a really great deal. And I think that we could do well. I think it'd be good for, you know, uh, whatever area it is or country it is. Then it takes forever, you know, just to, to get the overseas licenses, to get, uh, you know, all that type of stuff, you know, takes forever then you need to find every little detail from, you know, from chefs and GMs to designers and architects and all that stuff. It's, it, and then if you want to work with people that you've worked with in America and have them work with people overseas to coordinate all these things between, as you know, now with Zoom calls, trying to coordinate, you know, many people uh, on schedules with different time zones. It's a real pain in the ass. And so, so all the things leading up to opening up the restaurant take probably double the time that you would anticipate. But, you know, then once you're up and running, you know, it's kind of the same old, you know, running a restaurant, but just 
having calls and and zooms and and just lots of discussions and emails you know back and forth uh, just checking in on things on a daily basis is there anyone i mean it's a pretty tight knit industry slash community but is there when you open the first place abroad is there anyone you called for advice when you were contemplating opening in another country oh, man i think that was a while back i'm just trying to remember yeah i i Always try and call anybody. I mean, I remember calling, um, who was it on Dubai? You know, I spoke to, I remember Michael Gnor. I, I know, you know, he used to back in the day do lots of events, you know, over in the Middle East and, you know, spoke to him, uh, spoke to um, a couple other buddies of mine that had restaurants and, you know, in Lebanon and in Israel and some that had them in Dubai. I spoke with Michael White about it. You know, he had a restaurant, spoke with Michael Mina's crew. I know he had some restaurants in Dubai and actually spoke with, uh, you know, a couple chefs over in Spain as well that had, uh, that had some restaurants in Dubai. Okay. Something I didn't mention in your bio, and this is interesting now, in 2010, you received Star Chef's Rising Stars Mentor Award for your dedication to teaching and inspiring the next generation of chefs. This happens to be one of the main things we talk about with season four, episode one guest, Thomas Keller. Have you heard of him? (laughs) Thomas Keller said, I quote, I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me. I look back on my career on what influenced me and who mentored me. Mentoring is a huge thing for him as well. Why would you say teaching and mentoring the next generation of chefs is important to you? Oh man, it's everything. It's literally everything. I mean, I could care less. I mean, creating, I could create cooking at home. It's, you know, what I can teach to, to eager people that, that really want to learn and, and, and do their best to, you know, and I've been lucky enough in all my years to be honest, I don't know, of course, the Thomas Kellers and Danielle's and, you know, those John George's of the world, but I have had many people that have, uh, you know, worked with me over the years that have won James Beard awards from, you know, from Greg Vernick to, you know, Jamie Bissonette, Tony Messina, Tony Moss over on Craigie Street, Ming Tsai, Alex Stupak. You know, so I've had some really, really, you know, talented, talented chefs and many, many, you know, many more. Jason Wah, who's a chef partner with Andrew Carmelini you know, at the Dutch. So without these guys, I mean, I would have been nothing. So, I mean, when when you see that light in somebody's eye that that really wants to do the right thing and and be better you have to be willing to uh you know to see it and you have to be willing to take everything that you can to teach them how to be the best and sometimes it takes pushing sometimes it takes not pushing sometimes it takes patience but everybody is different and these are the people that made our restaurants great you know all these years and i'd learned a long time ago that you know i can't do it myself and i tried you know when i was a young chef I thought I could do everything by myself. But the day that I finally started to realize that, you know, the more I teach everybody, the better everyone's going to be, the happier everyone's going to be. And the longer people will stay with me as well, because, uh, you know, back in the day, if you can keep people for a certain period of time, you know, you could just create amazing, amazing restaurants with that talent. And it's like a sports team dynasty. You know, if you can go two years, three years with, a crew of incredibly talented people. I mean, it it can carry a restaurant for quite some time. You answered my next question was, it was going to be some of the incredible chefs that have grown under you. Because I feel like every time I talk to you, I learn some new incredible chef that worked with you. 
that you're always like, oh yeah, he worked uh, at Clio. I'm yeah. like, actually, what? Andrew. I just thought of Andrew Taylor at Eventide in Portland, Maine. Another James Beard Award winner worked with me. Sam Gelman, who is the head chef of the whole Momofuku Group, just opened up his own spot in Iowa. You know, he, uh, you know, he worked for me. So there's dozens. I love that. All right. I want to take a quick sec to give some love to one of our partners over at Ford's Gin. If you love a good Spanish style gin and tonic like me and this episode's guest, or if you're an Agroni or Martini type person, I'd say okay too. Seeing multiple gin bottles at a bar, restaurant, or liquor store may be a little daunting. Here's where Ford's Gin comes into play. It was crafted by bartenders, for bartenders, and at home bartenders alike to make a really, really good gin cocktail. Hear more on that in this season's bonus episode, episode 12, with the man himself, Simon Ford of Ford's Gin. Simon Ford noticed bartenders had various go-to gins for different classic cocktails and thought, why not make a gin that bartenders could use that would work perfectly in all these drinks while keeping it at an accessible price? Thank you, Simon Ford. And here's another reason why I love Ford's Gin. They've been giving back to the bartending community for quite some time, whether it's sponsoring nonprofit fundraisers, bartender funds, culinary events, and more. They always have the bartending community in mind. To learn more about Ford's Gin, go to FordsGin.com and follow them on social media at Ford's Gin. Please drink responsibly. Ford's London Dry Gin, 45% ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Ford's Gin is a registered trademark. Ford's Gin, we thank you. Switching gears from mentorship to gin and tonic. No, I'm just kidding. Did, <laughs> did I see a ridiculous gin and tonic, ridiculous in a good way, on your Instagram? I feel like semi-recently in a grilled pineapple syrup. Am I remembering yeah. this correctly? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, it's, it's so fun. I mean, you know, you've been to Spain, you know, uh, so gin tonic and, you know, Jose would, uh, I mean, he makes the best gin tonics on earth that I've ever had. And I've been with him in Spain numerous times where he has made them for me. Some of them later than we probably should have been drinking. <laughs> it, but, uh, you know, you can't get that guy to ever sleep. But one thing he taught me was, again, the more creative you can get with them, it's such an interesting spirit that it can work with a lot of things. A lot of people don't realize how many different botanicals are in certain gins. And, you know, they're all a little bit different. And then tonics too. You know, nowadays, you know, we used to always think tonic was tonic was tonic. But there's so many different kinds of, you know, tonics out there now too. So they all take on different flavor profiles. And we have our incredible bar team and Jody Battles, who oversees our bar programs and beverage programs at all the restaurants. She encourages the you know, bartenders to kind of get as creative as they want at Toro with their gin tonic of the moment, they call it G-T-O-M. So it'll change sometimes you know, weekly, sometimes monthly, sometimes you know, just depending on their whim. And that was one that they created, which was Super, super, super delicious. I would love that so much. Yeah, Spanish gin and tonics in northern Spain probably changed my life. And I'm actually so glad, you know, you mentioned you see more flavor tonics here now, but you didn't. I feel like 10 years ago, there wasn't as many flavor tonics. And in northern Spain, there was lavender tonic and, oh yeah, you know, this crazy. tonic. And it was incredible. All right, this isn't a podcast about gin. <laughs> I mean, it could be, but... Back to chef life. How old were you when you moved back to Boston to open Clio? I was, let's see, that was 1990, 31 years old. When did you realize that you truly made it as a chef? You know, it's funny. 
Oddly enough, when I realized I truly made it as a chef was the day that uh, Julia Child and uh, Jacques Pepin came into the restaurant. In Boston? In Boston. So in San Francisco, I knew I was a chef, but I, you know, I was a young punk. You know, it's like, it was my first chef job. And you know, I was able to go to Asia and teach people, but you know, I didn't realize you know, it wasn't my own restaurant. So you know, once with Cleo, I had Julia and, and Jacques come in you know, shortly after we'd opened. I was like, well, it's like if my food is good enough to attract, you know, Julia and Jacques, you know, within the first like month of being open, I was like, wow, I am doing something right here. And it was really, and Jacques is still a friend to this day. And, and I became very tight with Julia, you know, for, you know, the number of years that she lived before she passed away, you know, being in Boston. I think it's interesting you've taken on, I think it's smart um, and interesting you've taken on the role of restaurateur as much as chef. And it's also interesting hearing you talk about that you went to business school earlier in this episode. And it seems like you're glad you went to business school. It probably did a lot for your business acumen as a chef. What's the reason you take on the role of restaurateur? As, do, you, do you like that role? I don't want to use front of house, back of house because I hear Thomas Keller saying I try not to use that word. But. No, I, th- I love the role. And I think if to be a great chef nowadays, you know, if you're going to have your own restaurant, you have to be a restaurateur because you have to call the shots. You have to understand all the players and, you know, and what they're contributing and you know it's kind of like being a a player coach it's like they don't have them much in these days but if i have a great chef and i want to create a great chef in my restaurants it's only going to be smart for me and it's only going to be smart for the restaurant because that will give me flexibility to do other things that i want to do and whether it's spend time with family whether it's working on another concept to open whether it's traveling and getting inspiration or anything it's just a more time I can back off from a restaurant and let it kind of breathe and, and be its own thing under some incredible people, it's going to be smart for everybody. And they're going to have all the tools to be able to uh, open up their own place someday, which is what I want. I want everyone that works for me to be able to, if they want to open up their own spot, to have the skills and the experience to be able to do that without any doubts or any trepidation. So I think if they can learn, it's kind of like going to culinary school or going to business school. I'm an open book and anything that anybody ever wants to learn, I am always there for them. We asked a fellow Bostonian, Jeffrey Zakarian, earlier this season if he's opened the restaurant of his dreams yet. And I'm curious, I question for you. Have you opened the restaurant of your dreams yet? Oh, man. Well, you know, one of the restaurants of my dreams, I opened and then uh, sold at uh, La Verdad. I had a Mexican restaurant, you know, for a number of years. And so, so Mexican food is something that's always been like my favorite. And I don't really have favorite. I love Japanese. I love, I love Italian. I love it. But Mexican food to me is everything. So my dream restaurant will be someplace like a Tulum or something like that. And just, you know, being on the beach, having some kick-ass tacos, having, you know, just some handmade tortillas with some beautiful, you know, fresh, uh, nixtamalized masa and, you know, a glass of mezcal. And that's my dream restaurant. So, you know, I need to get back to Mexico cuisine at some point. I don't know when or how. And, but I will do it. Yeah. Love it. All right. Let's hit on social impact and giving back uh, a little bit. 
talked about mentorship, which for all intents and purposes is that. But as you know, all of our guests on this podcast, well, chefs in general are extremely giving and they all give back in different ways. I always say you all are more than what you put on a plate. And I know you're active with a number of projects and organizations. I started to mention in your intro, I remember early on when Rachel, Ray, and I were thinking of and starting her Yummo organization. I remember you were one of the first people that reached out saying, let me know what I could do to help them in the Boston area. I'll never forget that. So talk about some of the stuff you do, why you do it, how you pick it. You know, I definitely want to hear about Off Their Plate, which was started during the pandemic. And um, I know you have a hundred other things that you work on. Yeah. I mean, as chefs, it's in our DNA to help people. I mean, it's, it's what we do. We nurture through food and, you know, as well as any of uh, anybody does that it's, it just comes natural. So whether it's the, you know, whether it's a disaster somewhere, I mean, we've done everything from, you know, relief for raising money for, you know, earthquakes in Italy and tsunamis in Japan and the Bahamas, you know, we went over and cooked with the uh, World Central Kitchen during that hurricane and everything from, you know, raising awareness and funds for everything from Parkinson's disease to Alzheimer's to kids cancer to even now, you know, doing things to raise awareness for like kids celiac connection and things like that, which is near and dear to me with, you know, my daughter has celiac. And then with Off Their Plate, it was just doing whatever we could to help the frontline hospital heroes that were and continue to now to this day, which is so crazy, you know, working all those uh, insane hours. It is fucking crazy. And, uh, you know, it, but here it is again, you know, where, you know, these people are, they put their lives on the line every minute of every day. And how hard is it for us to be able to, to cook for them and, and to just put a smile on their face, even if it's for 15 minutes a day that they can eat a hot meal. And we were lucky enough to have some incredible people with off their plate that we raised exorbitant amounts of money. You know, we, we raised, I think, $6 million in six months, you know, when we first got rolling. And it was uh, insane just how the community just wanted to help out. And I wish I could do more of it. I love restaurants too much. I don't know how Jose and, you know, some of these other people can juggle the two, but I would be cooking to help people out, you know, every day if I could. That's amazing. So it sounds like a combination of a cause that's personal to you, a cause of friends or chef friends of yours as well. And just... And as a mentor, you know, again, you have to teach your staff that uh, that there's more going on than in the walls of the restaurant. We, we have a responsibility and and even the undocumented workers, you know, off the plate, they were getting, you know, we were able to bring people back to work, all the undocumented workers that were not able to collect uh, unemployment and were able to get them and money to feed their families and and be able to create systems where we had ingredients and and you know uh, grocery boxes and and work uh, with their communities in and around Boston and the state. You know, we we did things even in you know Worcester. We created pilots where we could get restaurants to be feeding people in need. You know, families and not just frontline workers. And so it's everything can everything is possible. And it's one thing that you know off their plate taught me and, and World Central Kitchen you know, taught me is, you know, don't make excuses, just do it. And, you know, you'll be able to find the money somehow, some way, if you're doing the right thing. It's incredible. We'll give the link to off their plate at the end of this episode. But it's amazing that that was able to be started during the pandemic, the amount of money that was raised, the amount of good that 
you all have done still do. I mean, it was acknowledged or recognized by President Obama. And I, I got emails from people in cities around the country like trying to connect me with off their plate. I was like, yes, I know it, which is, which is amazing in such a short time, the, the ripple effect you all were able to you know, create. Do you teach the kids about giving back? Yeah, we definitely teach the kids about giving back. And at a young age, we would bring them into the restaurants when we were you know, doing events and, and, and discuss them. We would organize whether it be you know five guest chefs uh, doing a pop up to uh, at you know my buddy's diner where we were charging you know a thousand dollars a head to you know give money back or or uh, showing the kids somebody in um, my son's class the dad ended up passing away in a, a motorcycle accident and we ended up doing a fundraiser I'd never even I'd met the dad but you know I didn't know the family well and but. We did something, you know, right off the bat. We're like, okay, we need to do something. And, and we raised, did a pop-up dinner and raised, again, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, you know, to pay for, you know, the kids' education, you know, after their dad passed away at the school. And just that's, that's what we do. And it's just teaching, you know, teaching the kids that, you know, if anybody needs any help through food, we can create something. And we're lucky enough to know people that if we do need to raise money, you know, we can charge enough to, to make an impact very quickly. Yeah. Is it, so you have two kids, as we mentioned, is there in terms of like balance with, with life and work, you know, family, how do you juggle that? Is there anything you always make sure, you know, you're always there for bedtime, which sounds ridiculous because you're a chef, but, or like there's always a vacation time or there, how do you balance that? Well, I mean, my family is, is number one priority without, you know, without even, without even questions. So you just mentioned like to be there for bedtime, you know, if I could be there for bedtime, I'm going to be there for bedtime, you know, for my kids. I, I wouldn't say I try to do that every night, but you know, I try to do it as often as I can. If it's important, if I know it's going to be important for the kids, you know, to see me, maybe if I'm on a long stretch of work and I don't see much of them, but, but meals are definitely something that we take very seriously. So if I'm not having the kids eat at one of the restaurants with where I'm working, you know, I'll definitely try and sneak away and go home and, and cook them dinner and, and sit together and, and just spend some time because the table again is, uh, in my opinion, the most important piece of furniture in any house, you know, apartment, whatever. So I will cook breakfast, lunch, dinner for my family every single day for the rest of my life. If I, if I could, because I number one, want them to be, with me in the kitchen. And number two, I want to, you know, to be sitting with them, not only teaching them about food, but being able to hear what's going on in their lives and, and in my wife's life as well. Let's do a quick speed round and then we'll close it out. What'd you have for dinner last night? Sushi. Smell in the kitchen you love. Garlic. Smell in the kitchen you hate. Hard boiled eggs. What pisses you off in the kitchen? Lack of focus. What makes you happy in the kitchen? Smiles. Love it. All right, let's close it out. We've covered a ton of ground here. Thank you, dude. I'm curious. Give us like three traits someone needs in order to be the next Ken Oranger to make it in this restaurant industry. Whew. Three traits to be the next Ken Oranger. Man. <laughs> My daughter just said generous, giving, yep. life of the party, and entertainer. <laughs> this comes from my family. You're allowed, that's perfect. I'll take it from your family. And, and to never, ever, ever, ever be tired of 
food. I drive everybody crazy. I'm like you, Cappy. I can talk food 24-7 every day for the rest of my life and never get tired of it. I love it. Awesome, dude. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. We could probably <laughs> take double the time. All right, Cap. We'll talk soon. Thanks, man. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, buddy. Okay. Thanks again to Chef Ken Oranger. Find more on him at KenOranger.com. To learn more about Off Their Plate, go to OffTheirPlate.org. That's O-F-F-T-H-E-I-R-P-L-A-T-E.org. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Kathy's Plate or go to BeyondThePlatePodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetton, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media is by Sarah McClellan Mead. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, presented by Ford's Gin. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Tappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.